This idea that you have to consume food uh, less than three hours after it's been cooked is very much a product of tropical thinking. People think that you put the rye um, uh, first uh, for some flavor thing. Uh. Actually not. It turns out is a way of finding out the temperature of the oil. Five liters of water in one shot is toxic for you. Three grams of nutmeg is toxic for you. Half a teaspoon of clove oil is toxic for you. Most spices are super toxic by the way. No proof that tea is good. In fact, too much green tea, bad for the liver. On your day-to-day -day basis, please use iodized salt or buy one of those pink salts that is iodized. Hi everyone and welcome to Kidstop Press. You know, when you are cooking in the kitchen, what happens is that we all have um, a little advice that comes on from mothers, grandmothers and we kind of just go with it. Like, you know, the chana cup, you put the potli in the chana or you have a chalk and you have, there's a particular way of doing it. But there's a science behind it and I have somebody with me who is going to make that and he's going to tell us how that happens and what is the science behind all of this. And actually everything that happens in the kitchen is based on science and we don't even think about it. So let's dive into it because I'm super excited to get to know what else he has to say. So Krish Ashok is a <coughs> Delhi, Delhi University graduate and he's a cellist, he's a guitarist, he's a violinist and he's the global head of digital workplace work yes. at TCS. Yeah. And now he's shooting straight from his table. So how did that happen, Krish? No, I think even if I'm working anywhere, I mean, we still have to eat two or three times a day. And as someone who's been cooking and been curious about food um, since I was a teenager, and then I lived in the US for about seven years where I had to learn to cook. Um, so cooking has always been interesting to me. Um, and as someone who's always loved science, um, it, it just ended up being the language that I used to understand cooking. Right? It's not like <clears throat> our grandmothers are amazing cooks, right? but it's not like they speak the language of science. Science is merely a language. Right? So you don't need to know science to know how to cook well. Right? But uh, science just offers you a way of precisely describing what's happening right? so that you can pass it on to the next generation. So I've loved science communication. Um, and I used to write columns on, you know, explaining popular science and so on. And I think around the pandemic time, it sort of felt like the good opportunity to combine food and science. And, you know, nobody had written a book on the science of cooking. And then that's how Masala Lab was born. And then now the, the, the illustrated edition as well. That's amazing. It is actually whatever <laughs> you do, the science behind it, we don't think of it. But there is a reason why all of this happens. Yeah. And I didn't know for the longest time that why do you put the rye first in the fat and there's a, there's a scientific reason for all of it. So strangely enough, you know, people think that you put the rye um, uh, first uh, for some flavor thing. Uh. Actually not. It turns out is a way of finding out the temperature of the oil. Right. So because it so, just so happens that uh, the mustard pops at just about the right temperature of the oil. So it's safe for you to add the other spices without burning them. Right. So you, if it just pops like too fast and violently, you know, it's too hot. And so you want to wait. Right. So the mustard itself actually lends no flavor to the dish other than actually a little bit of texture, right? If you want mustardy flavor, you have to soak mustard in water, like, you know, like Bengalis do. Um, so that's the, so it's just practical heuristics that I sort of recognize that our grandmothers learn from their mothers and their, from their mothers and so on. Yeah. So who is Krishna Shok? Because we hear you talk about stuff that normally is contrary to what other people's opinions are. So should we actually be listening to what you say? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So one of the things I tell people is uh, don't assume anyone is a guru, right? I think in, in, in India, we have a tendency to 
glorify individuals over institutions and processes and the scientific method right and so we would rather trust uh, you know some sort of religious person telling us something about food when that person has clearly never cooked a, a day in their life um, but we're not willing to listen to say uh, a nutritional sort of uh, institution telling you that this is these are your macros and so on because we tend to trust individuals over and i find the same thing right so you know um, now that I, you know, if you have like 620,000 Instagram followers, people actually blindly tend to accept what you say without question. And I keep telling people, no, that's, I think it's dangerous, right? So I hopefully want to focus on giving you a set of thinking methods that allow you to be skeptical, right? I mean, I'm not taking a contrarian position. Actually, I'm just taking a first principles approach, right? So if, if somebody says heating honey is toxic, I merely want to ask the question, how? and why explain what toxins why, what temperature right how much right so these are all just logical questions there's not really questioning the status quo but and i find that if you don't have the next level basic answers to the why then i think you know that's shallow knowledge right and i think you know science requires you to really go down to the first principles yeah that's true and like you're saying very correctly it's what people kind of just blindly follow and yeah you're very clear how you want to approach it. And a lot of people who just, like you said, you're 650,000 followers. Some are tr don't agree with what you say and we know that a lot of people don't. Yes. But there are also a lot of people who understand the entire science and how you're talking. There yes. is a method to it. I'm so in a sense, in a weird sense, I think social media is one of those strange beasts where there are people who follow you because people like following people. Right. It's, it's a cult thing, right? And I, you know, people who have these large followings, I mean, it's, it's candid, I have to say, that it's sort of like a, you're worshipping someone, right? It's, it's a cult thing. Then there are people who follow you because they absolutely hate you and disagree with you and they follow you because uh, they want to call you out every time you make a mistake and they want to sort of, you know, enjoy that, right? So this, these are the two extreme things that unfortunately is what you see on social media. The, the iceberg beneath the surface, at least for me on Instagram, has been the I would actually say three-fourths of the people who follow me are just quiet people at home looking for sensible, sane, non-scaremongering advice about food uh, on doubts that they have, right? <clears throat> they're forever bombarded with things that are scaring them and they're not quite sure. Uh, for example, they might have been doing something like, for example, you know, pe people will tell you they're not supposed to make a cucumber raita because apparently you're not supposed to mix cucumber and curd according to Ayurveda, right? Okay. Um, and so people are worried. I mean, they've been making cucumber raita for a long while. You know, where did this come in? And, and so the interesting thing is that when I then point out that Ayurveda actually has nothing to say about cucumbers. Okay. Absolutely not at all. It does have a lot to say about yogurt. It has nothing to say about cucumbers because the cucumbers we use today came to India much later. So they weren't around when, uh, when Ayurveda books were being written. So I think I sometimes tell people that you don't have to take this sort of very aggressive contrarian position that Ayurveda is wrong. But you can absolutely take the position that the people today who are using that term are misrepresenting it. I'm sure they're not reading those books or genuinely interpreting it or testing it in the modern context. I mean, how can Ayurveda have an opinion on refrigeration, right? Or microwaves. Right? Yes. They didn't exist back in the day. Right? How can someone 2000 years ago have an opinion on that right? or, or an informed opinion on that? And while you can still appreciate the fact that they made those choices to keep people safe at a time when things would spoil very quickly, milk would spoil very quickly, fish would spoil very quickly. And so they made up rules that made sense in the context of that time. I totally agree with you. And refrigeration is one of the things I did want to ask you about because I think there's, there are two very strong camps about yeah, it. Yeah. 
and your science behind it and uh, rightly so is that in such an age this is what it is it is what it is and, it and is again what it is. and refrigeration is um, so i think people sometimes if they just grow up in india and if they say if they have an opportunity to say travel to the west or europe or a place where the room temperature is actually pretty much refrigeration yeah. temperature right i mean you know in, in those days uh, homes would be 7 or 8 degrees you know in england or in the nordics right um, people would just keep things around and and people would let things stay around at room temperature for long amounts of time because they would not spoil right mm. um, and so it is pretty evident that this idea that you have to consume food uh, less than 3 hours after it's been cooked is very much a product of tropical thinking where absolutely food starts to spoil 30 minutes after i cook it in chennai yeah in delhi in the winter it's going to stay four or five hours without being spoiled in the winter right you know weird thing right so in winter coconut oil in delhi is solid something that i didn't realize till i came to delhi yeah coconut oil is liquid all the time in south india because the temperature never goes below 18 ever right which is when coconut oil melts so i think when people kind of know about the rest of the world then it opens up their mind to say that yeah this is fine and i think the mediterranean people the japanese people southeast asians and uh, nordics and people these are people who use the refrigerator who do eat a lot of old fermented food for days on end and they live 20 years longer than indians do right so i have no idea what is it that we are actually trying to protect in that case and i think it's a lot about convenience as well yeah exactly it's not possible to be working kids come yeah. back home do it's very difficult and I think maybe in the earlier days because the women were at home, yeah. it just uh, was an easier yeah, yeah. way of life. It is a so convenience has, convenience has always been resisted uh, in, in India, uh, in uh, at least many parts of Asia and so on, in the more patriarchal parts of the world. Um, my great-grandmother, um, my great-grandfather would say no gas stuff, right? You, know, you must use the wood-fired oven. And, you know, you know, die from bronchitis at the age of like 50, right? In an unventilated kitchen. Um, and then my grandmother's time, my grandfather would say, no pressure cooker. You must cook the dal on an open pot and, you know, spend more fuel, spend more time in the kitchen and uh, uh, no mixy because you're supposed to grind it with the hand and so on because the flavor is more and so on. And uh, now we find the same category of people like my great grandfather and grandfather now saying things like no microwave no fridge no using old food no no eating fermented food everything must be cooked fresh um, and you know i think there was a reel that i put out that say that the you know chapatis tend to go stale very quickly right so that starch retrogradation right so starch recrystallizes and becomes hot and that's just the way it is um, and so chapatis have to be eaten hot Right? And it puts a tremendous pressure on people to keep making it fresh, right? one by one, uh, for people in the house. Uh, and so when I said, you know what, if you freeze the chapati, actually it won't retrograde. Because retrogradation happens only between like 3 and like 20, 30 Celsius. It does not happen at freezing temperatures. So the best way to keep your bread or sourdough bread yeah. or your chapatis fresh is to put them in the freezer and you can eat them for months. Yeah, that's what I le learned when I went to the US and yeah. they would just take it out of the freezer and I'm like, are you crazy? Yeah. We go to our dukan, we pick up our bread every day yeah. and we just think that if it comes out of the fridge, it's not that as fresh. Yeah. But they do that all the time. The word fresh is, people, if you really interrogate them, they will not have a very clear definition of what fresh means and or that people will disagree with each other on what fresh means and those disagreements will vary by culture by society west east you know south north um, and it will also vary by economic class so uh, a, uh, a poorer person is actually less likely to have hang-ups about eating older food because they don't want to waste food right 
a rich privileged person with a cook is going to say i want everything fresh right uh-huh. so i think it is just that so as long as people recognize that their preference it's actually perfectly fine to say i will only eat fresh food as long as you don't make someone else you know cook it for you i think it's fine i mean of course you're willing to pay a cook for it that's fine too but you know if your own family members you say no 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 i it must be made fresh for me unpaid labor that's a very typical indian mindset okay i have to ask you this when i was prepping for your interview i came across your blog oh and yes. from many years ago yes yes and it's called doing jalsa and showing showing jilpa yes so i was totally zapped about this and i was talking to my editor and yes. she's a tamilian yes and the moment i said this i said you know uh, krish has his blog and i can't figure out what the reason for this is yes and she's like tamil movie and then she gave me the name of some yeah. movie and yes. then she said it has a cult, a cult following yes. she's crazy about movies as well yes. Where did the name come from, and how did you start to blog about so it? So there's a so when I started blogging, there was this uh, cult film that, that sort of become cult around the time when I started my blog, and uh, it was one of those films that uh, not necessarily like a massive hit or anything, but those who enjoyed it well and truly completely enjoyed it. It was mm-hmm. a movie about street cricket. Okay. Um, in a way that it, it captured that essence of Chennai street cricket in a way that no other film in any other language did, um, and it had. this like amazingly fresh take on humor uh, itself and a very not cheesy humor at all very sophisticated humor um and uh, there was a cult song from the film called you know in tamil it's basically doing jalsa and showing jilpa so jalsa is basically so it, chennai tamil has influences of portuguese telugu urdu because it's a port city right i mean yeah. over the years so the tamil spoken there has words from everywhere okay. and so jalsa comes from urdu right huh. i mean doing jalsa is having fun right yeah. um jilpa again is a weird word comes probably comes from telugu which means speaking confidently about things you have no clue about Right. which in my 20s kind of sounded like me right so i said yeah this is exactly what my blog is uh, so going you to be started about. this like 20 years ago yeah so this was started in like yeah 15 uh, 2007 2006 wow yeah. that was a, that yeah. time blogging was not even a it was only in bangalore and chennai because um it kind of took off in bangalore and chennai ah. and then later hyderabad so the first generation of people in india who got access to the internet middle class people who got access to the internet was in you know in chennai and bangalore so there were tons of these early bloggers huh. right and it was a cult thing right and uh, those blogs had like huge following i mean for that time right sure. uh, people would wait for uh, things to be posted and then leave a comment saying that yeah i was the first to comment and you know things like that uh, but yeah so those were the times so um, so that is when i had started this blog so from the blog to now instagram where everything is instantly 90 seconds 200 i mean it's interesting right i see myself as a now largely a writer who specializes in writing 255 words okay. which is the number of words that i can speak at my speaking pace in 90 seconds in a reel so 255 words so you measure so that I, yeah like so i have I, but i do write like 1000 words or 800 words and then keep condensing it till it becomes as informative and as dense and i remove all the unnecessary things as possible so that i'm left with 255 of the most impactful kind of word so it's a very weird skill in a way i would i wish people actually were okay to listen to 5 6 minute videos but they're not right i mean so yeah, that's the word attention spans are so low yeah, yeah it's just amazing so when we say indian food what does that mean to you so for me it means mostly about different parts of the country have so many different flavors different spices everybody uses yeah what does indian food mean to you it's a very weird question when i is a question that i grappled with when i wrote my book right when i said science of indian cooking i had to have an idea of what is indian cooking right and it turns out it's a very complicated thing to define right because for starters if you leave aside the political boundaries the food of iran 
Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, uh, Nepal, and Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka are all culturally integrated in the style of cooking, which basically, and the way I look at it is that all of these cuisines, every regional cuisine in these places, starts with heating fat and putting spices. Mm. This is what make, uniquely defines this part of the world. It's not true for any other part of the world. So, uh, Mexican food doesn't start by heating fat and putting spices. And they start from a different base, right? And uh, likewise, Western cooking doesn't start this way. Or uh, Chinese cooking is always about wok and high temperature, this thing, and they put all the ingredients. So, spices yeah. actually kind of go in later, right? They do ginger, garlic, and so on, but it's very different. Whole spices in hot fat is very unique to this region. Southeast Asia does pastes in hot oil. Yeah. Here we do whole spices in hot oil, right? And I kind of recognize that the fat you choose and the spices you choose actually define the, the regional flavor. So that was essentially one of the premises of my book that you could actually go find a YouTube, uh, some YouTube recipe or a, or a you know, blog, some food blog recipe. And it's a, let's say it is a, uh, say it is a Sindhi recipe of some kind, right? And, uh, and you could just simply replace the, the fat, which could be groundnut or ghee and the spices they use with panchforan and don't change anything else. It will taste Bengali. If you change it with uh, coconut oil and those five things that Keralites use, it will taste Malabar, right? Sesame oil and those five things that uh, Chetinad use, it will taste Chetinad, right? So fat plus whole spices is literally 80% of the flavor of any dish from any part of uh, India, right? So uh, from this region, this cultural region. So in that sense, it sort of began to me that maybe that's the overarching definition, right? Because the problem is India as we know it, is a political boundary created in 1947 and before 1947 the boundaries were different yeah. it included pakistan it included you know bangladesh and so on and if you go back a thousand years it did not include south india right? so a very weird thing that people don't realize is that kerala and tamil nadu these two geographical locations prior to 1947 have never been part of any integrated indian kingdom never really yes not Ashoka, not the Mughals, not the Guptas, not Kanishka, not anyone else. They all, their boundaries ended here. So they considered everything south of that to be barbarians. So in a time where people are chasing keto and high protein and low carbs, how does Masala Lab fit into the scheme of things? How does so it work? Weirdly enough, when I wrote the book, I I had sort of like a going in principle that this book would not touch upon nutrition and diet at all. The going in position was that this book would stop at the moment the food leaves your mouth and goes inside. So I was only interested in to the point where how your taste buds worked, how olfaction which is aroma worked and how sound and all the other things, taste perception worked. But the moment it got into your food pipe, it's like oh, the book stops right there. So that was always my position. And then it, the, the line got blurred only as I started doing Instagram and so on because it was impossible for people to somehow separate diet and nutrition from, from food, right? And they were not able to enjoy food because they were forever thinking of whether something is a toxin, whether something is un, uh, ultra processed, whether something um, is good for you, bad for you. And the social media, because of the short attention span, has ended up irrationally creating a bunch of villains and heroes. Uh, some heroes like turmeric, a uh, bunch of these things, and there's some villains, right? Maida, you know, a bunch of these things. Um, and the reality is that that's not how food works, right? And then people have sugar is villain, but jaggery is not villain, right? They're both sugar. 
right honey is hero but uh, something else is uh, brown sugar is bad for you but they put sugar for your body it has no difference right and and so over time it sort of became very harder to sort of separate uh, the both and i kind of came to recognize that uh, to give the credit to people right the design incentives of social media end up creating or incentivizing creators to create content focused on something sensational one ingredient this is poison did you know this contains this did you know they use caramel color that is carcinogenic and and so on um, so it's natural that people are sort of irrationally yeah. scared and i kind of then realized that no maybe i think the sensible way to is to do is to call that out and say and by asking questions right if you say something is toxic exactly how is it what toxin is it producing and you will find that most people are not able to answer that the creators themselves and then they will then you'll ask them how much of that toxin in your body is actually toxic for you right because it turns out that 5 liters of water in one shot is toxic for you yeah right? that's a few grams 3 grams of nutmeg is toxic for you really a half a half a teaspoon of clove oil is toxic for you most spices are super toxic by the way right in any amounts than the small tiny amount we use there they will all mess up your liver turmeric is terrible for your liver right if you that's why we use a tiny amount and then we overhype the benefits right so you need you need to consume 500 mg of turmeric to get like 1 mg of curcumin or something right which is the magical thing that prevents alzheimers and all that right so if you're trying to get curcumin by eating turmeric you're not getting that okay you you then have to take supplements and of for which there is little or no evidence that it actually has any benefits right so the problem is people don't realize that you put half a teaspoon of turmeric for five people in the house how much are you actually getting and then if you eat turmeric milk like three times a day it will thin your blood it will also mess up your liver right so it is just that people have a a distorted view of this and my goal is not to give people advice but to say you know question the kind of scaremongering that people are doing by asking simple questions Yeah, it makes sense because things like people are going like you said about jaggery and about palm sugar and coconut sugar and at the end of it, it's about they all have the sugar. Yeah. It's about the quantity exactly. that you actually consume. Yeah, yeah. So that's what makes the difference. Absolutely. And again, to be fair, there are dishes where I would absolutely use palm sugar or jaggery because it is delicious. It's the flavor that they it's add. It's the flavor, right? Yeah. So each thing comes with right. its own set of flavors. But somehow fooling yourself that a dessert made from jaggery is healthier than a dessert made from white sugar? No, it's a dessert. Right? It's an indulgence. Right. It's an indulgence. And people will say no no jaggery is iron. To get your daily allowance you need to eat 100 grams of jaggery. Okay. Right? That is that is a road to diabetes and metabolic yeah. uh, problems and so on, right? So I think you know that's the problem people and as I keep saying that people have trouble with denominators. sorry to use a math term but everybody focuses on numerator nobody knows the denominator is huge so when you actually divide it's statistically trivial that's what happens right very very tiny amount of benefits in honey very tiny amount of benefits in jaggery right the meal matters much more than whether or not your this was organic and then this was you know artisanally you know homemade and all of that right so that is secondary uh-huh. i mean if you're rich and posh enough to the point where you got your basics then you can invest a lot of money in improving it by a tiny bit by going organic by going doing all of these other fancy things right that's true it's about i think a lot of perception and a lot about how you understand what yeah. you're getting yeah so you love cooking yes if i asked you for some tips what are the meal plan what are the meal planning tips in that the krish ashok house <laughs> uses what would you tell us so part of my productivity hacks one is obviously um definitely use appliances like 
the electronic pressure cooker, which is, you know, instant pot is the most yeah. popular brand, but you know, any brand of electronic yeah. pressure cooker, which makes, just takes the headache out of pressure cooking. No whistle, whistle, you don't have to wait, don't have to risk whether it's going to explode. It'll quietly do it, it'll reduce it, it'll automatically take care of stuff. Okay. It'll not overcook, all of that is there, right? It takes the headache off that. Definitely for sure, embrace the microwave a lot more. It is very efficient. If you want to just heat some water for your tea or green tea or something, that is the most efficient, energy efficient way to heat, right? Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and and therefore, it is also fantastic for parallel processing. If you're, like, if you're using a stove, use the microwave, right? And, um, and then definitely embrace the fridge, right? So the way I would say is that the ways I prep, one is that if you're like cooking dal, right? I end up pressure cooking two to three times more dal than I need. And then I refrigerate it. Right? It'll last for a week um, and then um, every time you just take it out and then make the dal rather than you having to wait half an hour to do that. Right. The second thing I do is um, that I also sometimes on the weekends, I will make every weekend I might make like one base gravy. So what I'll do is that I'll take tomatoes, onions, cashews, some whole spices, uh, garlic and I'll boil them together and then make a paste and then freeze that. So next time I want to make like butter chicken or paneer makhani, take two cubes of that makhani gravy, add it straight to your dish and then in five minutes your dish is done, right? You can make a chetinad gravy, a Bengali based gravy and you have variety, right? I mean, you know, so freezing base gravies is absolutely another sort of hack. And then the third one is actually flavored oils, right? So okay. like for example, you can really add a flavor boost by having a bunch of different flavored oils, like so, you know, chetinad flavored ghee or a Punjabi garam masala flavored ghee, right? So when you're actually making ghee from butter, huh. Um, you can add things like pan leaves, uh, cinnamon and others and then fish it out and now all those spice flavors are dissolved in the ghee. Now what you have is flavored ghee, right? So you can add powdered garam masala or you can just add like a teaspoon of that ghee and it'll be amazing, way better. Then I, so like the Chinese and Japanese keep flavored oils all yeah. the time, right? So Sichuan chili oil and garlic oil and so on. Same thing, make it with Indian sort of ingredients, right? So these, these are ways in which uh, you can very rapidly, uh, kind of obviously, again, freezing things like sourdough and so on. So that way, you know, bread ends up going waste all the time, at least in Chennai. Yeah. Right, and uh, you do want to freeze, and I'm running out of space in the freezer now, right? So I don't end up storing the cheap bread, only the sourdough bread gets like special. Uh, so this is largely through so this saves a lot of time. So um, the amount of time for you to get from hey, here's what I want to cook is like literally half an hour, right? And again, this is something that's it's not something I would say I invented, but I mean, you know, my. My mother would uh, chop vegetables and put in the fridge because she had to go to office at nine. So she had to cook lunch at seven, right, okay. for everyone. And before we went to office, right, when, she, when we were uh, when we were young, and so I knew that uh, it was perfectly okay and acceptable to prep ahead, right. And uh, just all you have to do is seal them, keep them airtight. Uh, you can chop vegetables and keep them airtight and so on. So that's what I would do. And do you meal plan? Since you do <coughs> meal prep, do you plan for the week ahead? Because I'm sure everybody has such busy lives. Yeah, not, not, so we tend to sort of, uh, we are, um, since we eat anything, so it's, we tend to um, take a more dynamic approach to say, hey, what do you feel like eating today, right? Sure. So, um, if you feel like eating Thai, something like that, then there's one of these curry paste that's already ready made there and then chop some vegetables and then you make a green curry, you know, yellow curry or whatever it is, right? Add some shrimp, which will be there in the freezer. So, I, because we have, uh, like, none of the people in the house have any dietary restrictions. Right. So we end up being, so normally planning is required when, 
like you have a larger household and you have people somebody has diabetes somebody has heart disease somebody has that you do have to plan ahead right because you know what you make for one person other person may not like it's too salty it's too oily and uh, so for me i we can just in the evening like come back and then say hey what do you feel like eating okay chinese or let's to make chinese right so that's that's the way it is if you have if you're prepped ahead then it really saves time yeah that's actually at kistra press we do a meal plan so i send out a yeah. meal plan every week yes where the reason why we started it was was every day the maid used to come didi aaj khane mein kya banaye yes they get sick of trying to figure out what yes and so the our meal plan covers everything that from lunch breakfast dinner yeah evening snack bus snack tiffin yeah so you cover for six meals oh yeah, yeah, yeah. so then it's easier for the mother who's running around yes and then we send it on a saturday so that you have time to prep shop yeah, yeah. and then you have time to figure out you take everybody's opinions also into consideration Correct, and then yeah. you, you know you have a basic yeah framework to work with yes. and then obviously okay. you'd have to keep people's choices yeah, in mind so the framework i end up uh, that i've evolved over time is to focus not on the individual dish that we're making mm. but the balance meaning that every meal has to have a dominant protein and uh, vegetables presence and then a s- relatively smaller carbohydrates and other fried stuff right okay. and so this is something as we've grown older i think you know starting to eat healthy and so on um and this idea of eating the vegetables and protein first also causes a smaller blood sugar spike which again helps you extend your uh, the quality of your life right i mean if you eat the protein and the vegetables first and then the rice which is not what we do in india because we rice is first and then you pour everything on it and you eat it together right and and that's something that um so we've consciously attempted to change that so therefore idea is always that oh protein what do we do right uh is there shrimp in the is there fish or shrimp that's the easiest one because it's literally cooks in 30 mm-hmm. seconds right um if it's chicken a little bit more work a little bit more planning is required but sometimes we will end up um either sous vide or marinating it and keeping it but then again i wouldn't encourage people to keep in your regular fridge uh, marinated meat for more than like a week right and it, uh, even with all the acids yeah. um uh, bacteria still thrive at the fridge temperatures yeah. unless you fr- freeze it right and you know people don't like marinate uh, freezing the marinated meat right although you can right uh, but i would also then in a worst case you know plant be always egg right fried make whatever you want fry two eggs and your protein intake is done right and then we've consciously now also made sure that at least me and my wife are sort of uh, um regardless of what and then maybe like the 25 grams of whey protein or something in the afternoon is just so in case you're out of that i think a lot of indians significantly underestimate protein intake and i don't mean this just for the vegetarians even meat eaters in india actually simply do not eat enough protein in a day right so you might eat a fish curry but that's like three fish in a swimming in a giant bowl and you're probably getting like 1 2 grams okay and that's true for chicken curries and all that it's it's not like the west where the, the people will eat like over eat like a giant chunk of steak and you know four pieces of fried chicken and all that we don't do that right so we're almost always getting not enough protein and then people think wrongly think things like dal are very high in protein yeah that's they're, what okay but they're mostly carbs and you still want to you still want to get other sources right you still you know i keep telling my mother you have to eat yogurt right she's vegetarian so so eat at least eat yogurt right because that's some animal protein right you're not going to get all the essential amino acids from dal and rice you do need something from animals right so that's why india does not have that many vegans many south indians cannot digest milk like north indians mm-hmm. right so only 30% of south indians can south and east cannot digest milk as adults north and west the dairy belt 70% of them can digest milk 
so they can go you know to go to town on paneer and milk and all these other things in a way south indians they have to ferment it so that the bacteria eat the lactose so you eat the yogurt that's why curd rice is such a sort of like a very important thing for at least vegetarians uh, in the south yeah really i didn't realize that uh, the paneer fermentation was such a difference between right the paneer is not fermented right it's just acid curded yeah so it's so while it does not have as much lactose it still has right it, paneer still has fair amount of carbohydrates uh and yeah, that lactose yeah think of it as a huge uh, protein source no only 30% 70% is fat <laughs> so 70% of the calories uh -huh. in paneer are fat saturated fat 30% is protein and so people have to remember that so you have to adjust if you're eating paneer then you better not have like tons of oil and butter in other dishes so the paneer has like 70% fat okay i did not know yeah. that okay on that subject what is your take on cold pressed oils and refined oils so this is again a, it's a very um so people often um there's a very natural tendency to try and say that we've been eating oils in a certain way for thousands of years and that should be the healthier way because we have evidence that it did not harm people and so whereas all this refined oils came in the last 100 years and look at the amount of you know diabetes and heart disease and clearly that is to fault right um although that reasoning is wrong because uh, uh the life expectancy in india at 1947 was like 40 okay so most people died young yeah. so they That's died true. before they got cancer and diabetes <laughs> that's the point right and the ones who survived were all genetic freaks like they were already pre selected to be super healthy so everyone is like my grandfather was so healthy yes because three of his siblings died in childhood he is the lucky one right so people forget that right people had like seven children right <laughs> the only three would survive right so people where people only have two children and i think the people forget that in the modern day because of medicines and vaccines and all the lack of you know malnutrition and all of that unhealthy people with very poor genetics and unhealthy lifestyles are living up to 80 and so visibly you see them with diabetes you see them with arthritis you see them with all of these things in pre 1940 they were being dead by their 40s so this is something that people don't kind of recognize right so therefore the way i see it is that and again so cold pressed and refined oils fundamentally they're both fat okay at the end of the day amount of fat in your diet is far more important than what fat you eat and depend and you can find research that tells you ghee is healthy you can find research that says ghee is unhealthy you can find research that says coconut oil is unhealthy you can also find research that says it's unhealthy right people demonize palm oil here palm oil is the default fat in malaysia indonesia several parts of africa and people are quite healthy right so clearly the problem is fats are complicated they have a ton of calories 9 calories a gram so you get a lot of calories in very short amount of time there are genetic variations in how people process it so there are some people clearly a lot of people in punjab can consume all the butter and ghee they want and they seem to be quite okay mm -hmm. but there are other people if they consume a lot of ghee uh, arteries are going to get clogged so there are genetic variations as well so the problem with a lot of this is that it's impossible to provide universal advice on what is good or bad right but cold press oils one they're more flavorful but the moment you heat them you've lost whatever benefits of uh, whatever extra you paid for so the flavor comes from things that are not fat right the other phytochemicals polyphenols and all that which are all heat sensitive so in india we heat oil to very high temperatures tadka and all of that right moment the temperature of oil is over 100 you've lost all of those all of those molecules are destroyed so you've effectively you're paying extra for really nothing much right 
if you really want to enjoy the values of cold pressed oil, use them in salads or use them in very low temperatures, like you know, very light saute and so on. So the way I normally say it is, because the evidence is so complicated, eat as many different fats as you can. In fact, the good approach is, if you're eating a Bengali dish, eat, cook it with mustard oil. If you're eating Kerala dish, cook it with uh, coconut oil and eat four or five different fats because we don't know which one is good or bad. But you focus on keeping overall fat consumption low and keep saturated fats to about 10% of calories and so on is about the only consensus that people have. Everything else is tricky. We know monounsaturated fats are probably relatively slightly better in terms of evidence than polyunsaturated and uh, but it's all complicated. So the way I would say it is that use cold press oils for very light sauteing and use refined oils for deep frying. You're making puris the temperature has to be 180 170 celsius in fact you should not be using the cold press oils because they will burn and smoke and create carcinogenic substances you do not want to use cold press oils for deep frying right exception being mustard oil which is remarkably high smoke point yeah, smoke even point even in the kachi the, the kachi your, yeah yes yeah i think it's right because for me it when i use different kinds of things it's depending on what i'm cooking so if i'm cooking my Bengali food, then I will definitely use my yeah. mustard oil. Yes. A little bit of ghee when I'm doing North Indian, yeah. and like you said. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's about I, for me, it's more about the flavor. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a lot of people are very very stringent about what yeah, yeah. they. It's sort of a lot of people because of social media, people focus on the pickpocket and ignore the bank robber, right? Basically, amount of fat is the bank robber, and you don't pay attention to that. Cardiologists say that you should eat, in the, in, an individual should eat 500 ml of fat a month. Okay. That's one tablespoon a day. Do you think we eat just one tablespoon of fat a day? Way more. We eat three times more. So first focus on, if you bring that down, then it doesn't matter what you're eating. It could be palm oil for all we care or extra virgin olive oil. It doesn't really matter. But if you are eating like large amounts of fat, then if you're only eating one fat, then you increase the risk that if it so turns out, research finds out that, oh no, there is actually a problem with mustard oil because it is, it has erosic acid. By the way, mustard oil is banned in the US and European Union. Really? Yes. So, Bengalis who live in the US and Europe, uh, they, ha they have to buy mustard oil from Indian stores that has to carry the label, not for cooking. And they buy it, it's supposed to be only for hair, but they buy it and use it for cooking. Because mustard oil naturally has high levels of uh, acid called erucic acid, which for some reason, based on research in the 1960s, Europeans and Americans have said, no, it is unhealthy for the heart. Okay. Despite Bengalis and North Indians and uh, Bangladeshis, you know, using it for centuries, right? Yeah. Um, there's lots of, you know, conspiracy theories about the fact that the Canadians genetically modified mustard to make canola oil. Right, which is low erosic acid and they say that perhaps it's that lobby preventing mustard oil being imported into the US so that canola oil is what they use. Canola oil is basically low erosic acid mustard like oil, right? So it's yeah. similar, right? Um, but so therefore, the thing is that these are all complicated, right? People will say cotton seed oil is very bad, but the entire cotton belt of India cooks in cotton seed oil only. Yeah, I think it's also a lot about be, uh, eating what is local yeah. and you kind of adjust your yeah, you do get adjusted. Yes, yes. So I have a couple of questions for you. One is on salts. There are so many different kinds of salts. Yeah. Pink salt, black salt, Himalayan salt. What are your, which one do you think works or doesn't work? Yeah. I mean, I, sort of let me go back to the, the mathematical point I made about denominators. Right? The first question to ask is, how, what percentage of pink salt is sodium chloride? And it turns out to be 98%. Oh. Right, so 2% of 
of pink salt is all of these other fancy things right the next question is how much salt you use when you make a dish you know a tablespoon teaspoon a couple of teaspoons right for an entire dish so think about two percent of that is the amount of minerals you're getting that is not even a rounding error so therefore you're just paying through the roof for zero benefits it's just salt right the only variations can be in flavor right because yeah. the salts can be rough and textured right so kosher salt has a uh, more coarser texture your uh, your desi kind of salt has a thick uh, sort of this thing and then you have your black salt has a sulfurous smell which we use like in chaat masala mm. smells of eggs and so on right and pinks uh, but but the point is that i think again you are simply not getting you're getting such a tiny amount of those things that it's absolutely it's completely irrelevant and trivial okay. so so in that sense that and here's another danger right um india has a large number of vegetarians relative to other parts of the world right and in the 1930s and 40s we recognized that these vegetarians had a serious problem they were not getting enough iodine and so poorer children were uh having you know these goiter and these yeah. thyroid issues which yeah. actually affects brain development when yes. when you so it's a serious issue and that's the reason why worldwide uh people started to iodize salt right and add that sodium iodide so that way salt is being used every day you, and you don't need much and it's there mm. these other fancy salts are, unless you pay attention they're not iodized yes right and these vegetarian people using these fancy salts they're risking they're taking these serious irresponsible risks so i would actually tell them by all means you're making some fancy dish use that but on your day to day basis please use iodized salt or buy one of those pink salts that is iodized yeah we don't realize and i didn't realize this for a while that yeah. pink salt actually does not contain iodine no not naturally unless you add it right yeah. because again so pink salt comes from a all pink salt in the world comes from one mine in pakistan all pink salt that's why they call it himalayan pink salt because you know they don't want to call it pakistani pink salt for branding reasons but it all comes from there right and um, it again it's very far away from the sea iodine is something that you find closer to the sea in fish and eggs and uh, and so on so iodine natural sources of iodine not plants all animals so if you're vegetarian you have a problem okay. so that is why we decided to iodize salt right yeah okay okay just going to have a quick rapid fire yes and we're going to end this okay chefs you follow religiously oh it varies by i have a bunch of bookmarked uh, people for various cuisines right so i obviously love ranveer brars It's just the storytelling and the beautiful videos he makes. And for North Indian vegetarian, Nisha Madhulika is like absolute. Then Chennai Samayal, Madras Samayal for South Indian uh, sort of meat and so on. I have uh, one such person um, for Andhra cooking and so on. And likewise, Hebas Kitchen for very rapid, quick South Indian Karnataka style dishes. And then the Salus Kitchen for uh, Balabar sort of Kerala uh, cooking and Bongi eats for you know. bengali cooking and and so on right so i follow these and there are a couple of these other my only rule is uh, the person cooking should be speaking the language of the place where the food is from right i agree so so it's like telugu cooking the person has to be speaking in telugu so only so that's my way of so spanish you know mexican it should be some old abuela sort of cooking in a kitchen and that's i know that yes that's what i want to do right yeah. one spice you love cooking with oh it keeps changing but i um i really really like black cardamom right i mean it has a more muskier meatier savory flavor compared to green cardamom right uh, and uh, sort of like you know uh, green cardamom is like sachin and black cardamom is like rahul dravid right you know somebody 
dependable, reliable, the wall, right? Okay. And, and it's fantastic in neat dishes. So, yeah, so I like black currant. Okay, one ingredient that is overhyped and unhealthy. Oh, this is a big list. <laughs> I mean, I could literally name everything from jaggery to honey to turmeric to you name it. Anything, that, green tea to literally everything is the benefits are overhyped. Um, like for example, here, weirdly enough, the only beverage for which there is 40 years of research backing significant health benefits of 15-20% reduction in the chances of heart disease and so on for people who consume at least three to four cups a day. The only beverage is black coffee. And yet people think coffee is bad for you, right? No proof that tea is good. In fact, too much green tea, bad for the liver, right? Coffee is not. Tea is actually very bad for the liver. Lot of tea, right? I mean, not your regular black tea, green tea, right? Um, and so therefore, I think uh, there are too many things. I think any, it's very simple. Anytime somebody says something is a superfood, there's a good chance that it's probably overhyped. It's probably okay as part of a balanced meal, but you know, don't break your head. Yeah. Okay. Uh, three cookbooks that you would recommend? Oh, it keeps changing, but I always enjoyed Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking. I think sort of like the Bible of food science. But yeah, it's like 2000 pages and not for everyone. Uh, Samin Nosrat's Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Absolutely. And uh, there is also a book. Uh, there is also a food lab by Kenji Lopez-Alt. Okay. Which is sort of one of, the, one of the books that inspired me to write Masala Lab. In fact, the name also, right? Food Lab and Masala Lab is sort of inspired from Food Lab. That's sort of like the science book for Western cooking day-to-day -day cooking with a lot of pictures and you know this is for Indian cooking yeah interesting and uh, oil or ghee which is a healthier option <laughs> neither of them just so I think if you if you're consuming a lot of fat both will do damage yeah if you're consuming a small amount pick either one it doesn't matter enjoy life use ghee if you're using small amounts it tastes better right for the right dish right you know eggs tofu or paneer which is a healthier source of protein um, hard to say. I think they're all okay. Um, again, paneer is 70% fat. So I do want to call that out. So I would not put paneer in the same grade. Uh, tofu again is a lot of water, right? So you'd have to eat a lot of tofu. Okay. Um, eggs actually are really, really good. People have demonized the yolk because it has cholesterol and all that. Now there is evidence that the dietary sources of cholesterol don't actually affect your... Okay. There is like more complicated evidence. So therefore, um, I would actually say eggs probably are the best. And if you're vegetarian, I think uh, tofu is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Hacks that would work if you want to cook fluffy rice. Fluffy rice. So I think first and foremost, you need um, a variety of rice that is um, uh, high on amylose, right? So this is your Sona Masuri, Basmati, Samba and so on, right? Unlike say Govindu Bog or the Pony, which are sort of low amylose, so they will stick. Mm. Uh, so first you need something that is high amylose. The second thing is you need to wash it till the water runs clear, right? So that's another important step, right? Because that causes sticking. Um, and then the next thing is that um, cook it on an open pot if you want fluffy. Convenience, I think an instant pot pressure cooker it's perfectly fine, daily stuff, right? But if you want the perfect sort of rice that you want to use in a biryani or a pulao and so on, you want to cook it in the open pot where uh, you want to bring it to a boil, add salt, then add the rice. And then once the water reaches the level of the rice, then reduce it to the lowest heat and close it. And then here's the important thing. Um, after 10-15 minutes, the water will empty. 
then after that don't open it for another 15 minutes so actually cooking fluffy rice takes like 45 minutes so that's so it's not for everyone but if you want perfectly fluffy rice this is the time that it takes right there's a science behind that <laughs> yeah and then most important last step you do have to open it and use a fork to fluff, to it. fluff it up i agree that's what i do because that what allows the gases to escape and then you will otherwise it will become mushy and sticky at the bottom yeah the fork i use yeah. and i yes. think it makes a difference when i use my rice Big cooker difference, yeah yes yeah uh chop on onions without frying a hack that you have tried and works oh um uh, so um so what actually happens when you cut an onion is that one the onion does not want to die right so it has some defenses right so every time you cut a cell there's an enzyme that kicks off a reaction that takes 30 seconds by the way so okay. for that reaction to complete and it produces a volatile sulfurous molecule which when it hits your eye breaks down into dilute sulfuric acid so basically the onion's way of defending itself is acid attack okay right so that's why you tear up now um that enzyme that causes that reaction works only at like typical room temperature right so anywhere in the 20 to 30 and all of that so if your onion is really cold right so but the problem is you can't store the onions in the fridge so what you do is that you briefly put the onion in the freezer for like about 10 15 minutes before you're cutting it uh, and you will find that you will not cry because the onion will still be cold and that enzyme reaction won't happen and if you're good with your you're very fast then uh, you can uh, you can avoid crying entirely what professional chefs do is that it's they have very sharp knives and they're so good with cutting an onion that they finish the entire cutting in under 30 seconds So if you can cut under 30 seconds you won't cry because it takes 30 seconds for that reaction to happen. Okay. So they immediately cut close yeah. it uh, and then put it in you know close it so that you know you don't uh, okay. a couple of other things like for example I think if you you have to cut the root at the last. Okay. The moment you cut the root that's what's going to you know that triggers off the Yeah, I mean that's that's where the the baby onion plant is, right? So that's where it wants to protect. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And the So I think I always keeps telling that sometimes people assume that the concept of death and slaughter applies only to animals no you are killing you are killing plants in the kitchen right the plant is alive till the point when you cook it or you cut it so unlike your piece of chicken or fish which is dead well ahead of time right so it is yeah yani i'm going to try yes. because i have had copious amounts of yes crying and i really want to sort yeah. that out okay if you bite into a green chili what is a quick hack that can So um usually so generally water and these things don't work you need something to wash off the uh, casein protein in milk apparently washes off and fat fat and protein tends to wash that off it's fat soluble right capsaicin which burns yeah causes the burning sensation so um milk is usually one that is recommended but again to on a practical note at least in my home i'm not going to rapidly find milk ready i have to open cut open a packet and all that it's not going to work right milk is not always available so yogurt is always available so it works too um but if if you if it's really really bad what works better than yogurt instantaneous relief is ice cream yeah vanilla ice cream is actually what i have cream tried. it's the cream part so it's any kind of cream okay. because it's fat and casein low temperature all three things will switch off that receptor so remember that the chili is actually tricking the temperature receptor okay so it's fooling the temperature receptor into thinking that something physically hot is in your mouth okay that's the chili's way of defending itself from not being eaten and again the way the reason it did that is because birds do not have that sensor so chilies expect birds to eat the chilies and sort of you know drop the seeds elsewhere the chilies the birds cannot feel the chili seed so they are designed to eat chilies right So we on the other hand we enjoy that phantom pain and so we kind of you know we've gotten used to it right um but um 
so ice cream actually is so is low temperature so that will also turn off that uh, receptor yeah it does numb out your yeah. yes teeth uh, tongue sorry. yeah 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 yes okay the last one if you have to set curd and you don't have a starter have you tried any hack that works it depends um if you have like if you have like decent organic ginger peel that will also help okay um there are many sources of uh, lactobacteria ginger peel is actually probably one of the most common the second one is the the stalk of uh, chili so i've used the stalk of the chili yeah. first this is the first time i'm hearing about the ginger, ginger also, yeah I've never so in fact uh, ginger um ginger is quite interesting because uh, the ginger peel has both yeast and bacteria okay so you can actually take water uh, put chopped ginger with the peel and equal amounts of sugar and then like a sourdough starter keep feeding it every day sugar and ginger peel right and in 3 days you'll actually have a uh, called a something called a ginger bug which is a starter of bacteria and yeast and now you take a little bit of that liquid and add any fruit juice it will ferment it okay. that is how ginger beer used to be made right so and if you if you're right so basically don't try this if you are in a dry state like gujarat or bihar or nagaland but yeah it but up to 1% alcoholic uh very very healthy probiotic like a kombucha basically okay yeah it's called ginger beer so that's how originally ginger beer used to be made it's very super healthy very tasty you can take like coconut water add sugar then add a little bit of this you'll get something that's 1% alcoholic and tastes like kallu that you get in like kerala right it's fantastic yeah that's interesting yeah so so you can use the ginger peel to ferment uh, okay. yogurt as well but again it has to be fresh ginger so that's the thing right I've tried a green chili. Yeah, and green chili also works. Yeah, yes. green chili. Keep the stem. Yeah, keep it dipped in, and yeah. I've tried that. So it's the only part of the chili plant that doesn't have that burning molecule. So that's the only part of the chili plant that bacteria can attack or fungi can attack. Okay. So that is why all the bacteria live there. They're just waiting for the the fruit to become sort of mushy, and for the cells to lose their defenses. so that they then end up spoiling the chili, right? And so that's why you remove the stalk and say, save your chilies in the fridge. They last months. Okay. So that's why if you never if you want chilies to last longest remove the stock and uh, store them in the fridge. They'll last forever. It's been an amazing chat uh, Krish. I really enjoyed this and uh, I hope you have enjoyed it too. Absolutely. 